This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, our focus returns to Brazil and a trip back in time. 50 years, to be precise, as the 50th anniversary of that country's influential military coup looms in the week ahead. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Protests and strikes froze a large portion of Paraguay this week. The strikes shut down bus services, taxi services, schools, and many businesses. Julio Lopez, a union member, talks about the strikes. We are witnessing one of the most important historical developments, not just as a union movement, but as a popular one. The March 26th strike represents one of the most important events given the current situation in our country. Unions in Paraguay oppose a law allowing private companies to invest in the government. The unions are also calling for a 25% pay increase and more accessible credit lines for poor people to start their own businesses. President Horacio Cortez acknowledges the legitimacy of the union's complaints, but he has no plans to change the privatization legislation. The law affects airports, water treatment plants, international toll roads, and the company that dredges the Paraguay River. Brazilians took to the streets to reenact the March of Families for God and Freedom in Rio de Janeiro. The reenactment was led by conservative groups, while left-wing groups organized a counter-demonstration aimed at protesting the reenactment. The March of the Families for God and Freedom was conducted by conservative groups and preceded a military coup in Brazil 50 years ago. For this reenacted march, Rio's police deployed heavily in the streets to keep 300 counter-demonstrators away from the conservative marchers. Despite the small number, some protesters broke through the police lines and caused disruptions in the city center. Some of the conservative protesters also held up signs against the current government of the left-wing Workers' Party. The upcoming World Cup is another key issue for Brazilians, Some of the protesters from this week have vowed to stir up more opposition during the cup, which is set for June and July. We'll have more reaction to the protest and a discussion of the military coup after this newscast. For the third time in three months, a major credit rating service has cut its economic assessment of Venezuela, saying it has worries about the stability of the country due to street protests and a weakening status of Venezuela's currency, the Bolivar. The Fitch Rating Service now rates Venezuela as having about the same creditworthiness as Rwanda or Ecuador. Venezuela's Bolivar officially trades at about six Bolivars for one dollar, but the Venezuelan government is experimenting with some official currency trading at a much lower rate of 51 Bolivars to the dollar. However, Bloomberg Businessweek reports that the black market trade rate for the Bolivar 
hit a low this week of 76 bolivars to the dollar. The currency instability is fueling what some experts call the fastest-growing inflation rate in the world. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Ackhamel. Thanks, Megan. In the coming week, Brazil will mark 50 years since a military coup that altered that country's development. Backed by the United States, a military junta overthrew President Juan Goulart, also known as Django. What followed was 21 years of military control, terror, torture, and tyrannical rule. Professor Victoria Langland of the University of Michigan has written extensively about the coup and its aftermath. She is the author of Speaking of Flowers, Student Movements and the Making and Remembering of 1968 in Military Brazil. When we reached her via Skype in Michigan, she told us there is even a controversy between political factions about what day the coup began. So events um, that we now refer to as either the coup of 1964 or some would call it the beginning of the Democratic Revolution of 1964 begin in the late hours of March 31st. Some argue prior to midnight. Some say they actually begin after midnight, as you might imagine, because of the, um, you know, sort of opacity of, of things emerging in the middle of the night. It's hard to specifically date that. Um, but we do know that by April 1st, 1964, the military had come in, unseated the democratically chosen President Juan Goulart, and stepped into power. Um, April 1st is the Dia da Mentira in Brazil, the Day of Lies, a little bit like April Fool's Day in the United States. And so even though originally newspapers sort of proclaimed April 1st, 1964, is the day that the military intervened to um, sort of transform politics in Brazil, quite quickly... Um, those who supported intervention thought that date was problematic because it could seem like a joke. It could seem like a lie, a joke, kind of a funny thing. And it quite quickly became called the revolution of March 31st. And that's the way proponents and, and supporters of this intervention would thereafter refer to, refer to those events. Those who opposed the, the coup would call it a golpe, a coup, and say that it happened on April 1st. So you can pretty much place yourself in some ways politically by saying whether or not it was the revolution of March 31st or the golpe de estado of April 1st. And so I, I would guess the people that see this as a, as a democratic revolution uh, would be conservatives today. Yeah, definitely. Um, you would see that in, in our kind of, yeah, our left-right left, right political spectrum, you would see that as conservatives. These were essentially, the people who supported intervention in 1964 were essentially concerned about popular mobilizing, concerned about um, the, the democratic government's um, appeal to leftist factors. This was a moment, really, the 1950s and 1960s throughout Latin America are a moment of incredible political opportunity um, and a sense of real political urgency and possibility where people are talking about long-standing problems of inequality, of underdevelopment, um, but they're looking at quite new alternatives to confronting those, to confronting those problems. So under um, the president who's overthrown, Juan Goulart, under Juan Goulart, you see the rise of um, militant labor movements, of um, agrarian um, efforts for agrarian reform and demonstrations among peasant communities, um, a very active student movement, um, a lot of kind of political mobilizing, which seemed very threatening in the context for what you're not claiming, what we're not kind of calling the conservative forces. These were militaries and military officials and their civilian allies um, who considered in, in this Cold War context, considered that much mobilizing as actually 
quite threatening and destabilizing. So today, 50 years later, what's the significance of this coup? Well, it's huge. It's huge. It ushered in 21 years of military government. Um, And I should add that in Brazil, the military had a history of intervening in the past politically. Um, They intervened multiple times in in the 20th century of Brazil um, to essentially unseat a president that was seen as unstable or for, for a variety of reasons that was seen as, you know, leading to some kind of political instability. But generally they would then have elections and a new civilian president would take office. In 1964, they don't do that. They, they maintain executive power for themselves. They transform the congressional power, uh, at times closing Congress, at times opening it. Um, they have incredible um, influence over the, ju- the judiciary. And so it, it breaks the rules of politics as they had happened up till then. But more importantly, they, like other military regimes in, this, in South America at this period, begin an unprecedented amount of state repression against citizens who in the past had, been, um, had not experienced this. And I'm kind of being a little bit, um, a little bit cagey in my response. I'm, I'm trying to avoid claiming that the state never prior to this, um, enacted repression against its citizens because it did. We know from the history of slavery, we know from the histories of inequality that certain communities have long been the targets of state repression. But under the military regime, it's people who had previously been quite privileged, who had not experienced that. People like upper middle class and middle class students, young people and others, who, um, who experienced quite profound repression um, mediated by the state, or not mediated, but um, enacted by the state. Some people who would look at this, perhaps from the conservative end, might say that this particular period, those 21 years, were very important in, in shaping the national identity and nationalism in Brazil. Or, or would you disagree with that? Um, political actors are always doing that, right? Getulio Vargas in the 1930s and 40s has a, an incredible campaign to promote a certain kind of Brasilidade, one that is linked to a political project, in his case, linking it to um, increasing federal power for, a, for a, a country that, for which regional power had been much more, um, the, the power of the federal government had been quite circumscribed and the f- powers of the state governments had been much more important. And under Vargas, he tries to reshape that political, prop, uh, that, that political balance and does it in part through a campaign of nationalism, of heightened Brazilian nationalism, of allegiance to an idea of a, of a strong nation. The military state does the same thing. I would say the Pete does the same thing. I think all political governments, you know, tie what they're doing to a, a new definitions of patriotism and nation. So to me, yes, it's the quality of it that's different, but the fact of it to me is, not, is no different. I think that there's always um, a strong linkage between efforts at promoting a certain kinds of nationalism and a political project. You talked about the intensity of repression during the military government in Brazil. Um, was that the leading edge then of, of this conservative push to, as part of the Cold War in Latin America, of, of repressing thought on the left? I mean, what happens here, it's not just repression per se. It's the fact that in Brazil, as in Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, and other places, the state implements a whole subterranean, extra-legal, you know, illegal, premeditated system to shut down political opposition and to transform political identities. 
And so it's not just, say, that protesters are beaten up in the street. It's not that. It's that they, um, they create a system of, um, of espionage, of clandestine detention centers, of, um, of torture, of Im- imprisoned um, opponents, uh, of people who are never, not uh, of a great number of prisoners who are never legally prisoned, who are not prison, imprisoned through a legal system, but who are abducted. Um, through unidentified agents, essentially disappeared um, for the time that they're imprisoned and then sometimes disappeared forever because they're killed and their bodies are disposed of and no one ever hears from them again. Um, That is the repression that I'm talking about, not just sort of like, oh, yes, you know, meetings are broken up and people are unable to organize politically against them. Well, I wonder if Brazil becomes the leader in the Southern Cone and in South America Mm -hmm. for... Um, showing that this is what conservatives need to do in this Cold War space. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think there's a lot of truth to that in that um, what conservative um, figures are confronting in South America in the 1960s and early 1970s is this moment of political mobilizing that crosses borders. Um, And their concerns about it are quite similar. What happens in Brazil in some ways does become a cautionary tale for Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay, and that the, the the coup takes place in 1964, but for the next four years, you don't actually have massive repression of the opposition. You have selected repression, absolutely, of certain figures, um, but that kind of systematic um, interrogation uh, and clandestine detention really takes off after 1969. Um, so really from 1969 through the mid-1970s is the period of the greatest um, clandestine repression against political opponents in Brazil. Some have said that the Uruguayan case in 1973, the Chilean case in 1973, and the Argentine case in 1976 all learned from the Brazilian experience that you can't begin with a modicum of political expression, that in fact you need to, um, if you're going to confront this perceived threat, you need to confront it quite forcefully from day one, which is why September 12, 1973, some um, 7,000 people are rounded up in Chile and and imprisoned in the National Stadium, like right away. There's not four years of trying to selectively silence certain opponents, but leave a a degree of political liberty as you see in Brazil. It's quite different. And and then we see through Operation Condor, which is the secret um, agreement between the military states um, of those four countries, plus Bolivia, eventually I believe Peru is included, um, where they share information about um, what they what they label subversives about um, political activists and sometimes share people, right? Sometimes share um, um, the detained and passing them back and forth to different, um, to the hands of different um, security personnel. So absolutely they're sharing information. And I think Brazil becomes, becomes an example for the others in some ways of what to do and what not to do. Your book is about the student movement in 68. I take it that was the reaction took four years for this reaction in Brazil and that they were not successful. Yeah, I mean, what it's interesting. There, there's definitely student um, opposition before 1968, right? That, that doesn't appear out of nowhere in 1968. There's a great deal of, um, of organizing in 64, 65, 66, and 67. Um, but in fact, what, that, what that's emblematic of is the fact that there was the possibility of public, sometimes nonviolent, sometimes violent, but public opposition, public demonstrations of opposition were were possible in 1968. They were not in 1969. 
So in fact, those street demonstrations of 68 both reveal or both illuminate a little bit about this. Some people later would call this um, kind of the the lighter phase of dictatorship between 64 and 68. That's a controversial term. I could tell you more about that later if you were interested. But um, there is a possibility of some kinds of political expression in 68, which will be absolutely shut down in 69. What else about the coup and this military period in Brazil that you think it's important for our listeners to know? Well, I think it's important to know that these anniversaries are not just something that professors like me think are interesting or, you know, are not just an occasion for a radio program to say, okay, there's a nice round number, let's talk about this. But these are um, sources of of public debate in Brazil today all the time. Um, They have been, well, well, there's two things, that the military period is a source of debate. Um, There's currently a a National Truth Commission that was established in 2011 by President Rousseff um, that went into action in 2012. They've got two years to um, do a lot of investigating about some of the human rights abuses that took place under this period. Um, There are also a whole series of other truth commissions being established by universities, by states, by other municipalities um, that are trying to come to terms with some of what happened. So this is a constant source of discussion. Um, at the same time, these anniversaries always elicit some kind of response. Um, and you can look at, it, you know, it's quite fascinating actually how the military has commemorated March 31st, 1964, over the years, when they used to have big public celebrations, when they then started to have private celebrations, when they've released public statements, when they decided not to release public statements. I don't actually know what they'll be doing this year, the military, um, on on March 31st. Um, but it will be very fascinating to see how that gets you know, how that gets discussed. Thank you so much. Victoria Langland from the University of Michigan, the author of the book, Speaking of Flowers, Student Movements and the Making and Remembering of 1968 in Military Brazil, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to be with you. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-CALLWWF. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Professor Cristina Pacheco of the University of Paraíba grew up during Brazil's military rule. She joined us in our studios to discuss the coup and reminisce about how life changed in the 1980s when the military agreed to a transition. Uh, I was in the school, in high school, in elementary school during the process. We learned a lot of things. Mathematics, physics, they are not affected. But history, for instance, it's extremely affected. And um, we had specific um, disciplines which were like moral and civic education and um, organization of political and social organization of Brazil, where we learned a lot of the military values. It's weird, right? That That was how it was. We had to sing the anthem, the Brazilian anthem, at least once a week in the morning. And after the coup, we did not. What I would like to share is that I live the transition right there. And I remember the first moment that I, um, when the process began, 
the professor, the history prof professor went to the, to the classroom. He jumped onto the desk, which was like crazy, right, for us in, 17, in 84. He jumped onto the, onto the desk and he asked us, who discovered Brazil? And you know, kids, when you have been asked so many times and you hate to answer that question, so we answer like in a really boring voice, Pedro Álvarez Cabral, you know, like, oh my God, I can't stand this question anymore. And then he looked at us and he said no. And we were shocked. Why not? What do you mean no? We've learned so many times that. And he said, um, and he started to teach, but that was, that was a direction Of the, of the high school, right? It was not he specifically. He started to teach uh, history, uh, focus on process. And until then, we were learning history on facts, dates, and people. And of course, military people mostly. So it was such a difference for us, you know, to rethink history. In, in a new term. And we also start to have um, sociology as a discipline we didn't have before, and philo philosophy as a discipline, which was great for us, I mean, at, at least for me. And uh, the last thing that I, I want to I say is uh, I was a known, baptized person in a Jesuit school. In Florianópolis, and in Brazil in particular, during this period of time, Uh, Catholic schools are really good. They are the best quality of teaching, private schools, right? And in the 70s, in the 80s, had to be private school if you want to have a chance to go to a good college in Brazil. The public school, they were really good during the 50s, right? But they st stopped supporting it. The states stopped paying well the teachers and all that. But anyway, I went to a private Catholic Jesuit school being not baptized. I never suffered any kind of prejudice being not baptized. And before the coup, during the coup, actually, the theology class, which we had to have because we were in a Jesuit school, was basically walk um, behind the, the, the priest, go to the church and pray. I forgot all those classes. You know, in my mind, I can remember only one or two because for me, it doesn't make sense. I'm sorry for those who believe in God. I'm not being disrespectful. But for me, it does not make sense to go to a church and pray. But anyway, after the coup, theology classes start to be because it's a Jesuit school and Jesuits are pro um, theology of liberation. So they are Marxist. That's funny, right? Because Marx didn't believe in God and they are Marxists. But anyway, uh, these Jesuit guys, these professors, they start to teach us politics. We start to think in terms of politics. It was really, in, for me in particular, because I follow this political science field, international relations and political science. So it was amazing. The classes, we, uh, we were leaving the opening process. There was a movement to elect directions. And we were there discussing with, we were like 13 years old. We were listening the the speeches of um, a specific 
Dom Evaristo Arnes, which was an important priest that support the direct elections. So we were, it was amazing. The change was really well affected, you know. They, they closed the Congress, they um, tried to close the judiciary, and I studied the judiciary on my PhD, so I took a particular view on this process. So do we still feel the impacts of the coup today in Brazil? That's an interesting question. I think in terms of um, economic expenses and the, especially the debt, they, 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 they spend a lot of money. They, they, there was this economic, economical miracle during four or five years of the coup, which they invest a lot of in infrastructure like bridges and roads and uh, in parts. And so we, our, although there was a lot of jobs going on, after that, there was no, and especially because of the oil crisis in 73, was during the process, was in international economic crisis. The United States felt that, that crisis too. And because of that, um, we didn't uh, keep growing after 75. So we experienced a lot of um, debt. We had to pay our, our external debt, uh, basically the, the interest of the, of the debt. And in 85 and until like 94, when Cardoso uh, put the, went to, uh, became president, and when Cardoso be, became president and put the real, stabilized the economy, right? But during, uh, from 74 to 95 or 94, we had a bad experience. So we, we had a lot of inflation. Since 85, we don't have, we are not afraid that the military are going to return and, and get the power again, come back to power again. They don't have the support. Actually, right now, like this weekend, there was a march I don't know if you've heard about it. There was a, <laughs> in the social media, there was a lot of supporters, like 70,000 supporters. They, the numbers that I look. To right, bring the military back. To support the, yeah, to bring the military back. Because these were the good times. Of course, there were people that gained a lot during the military regime. They had a job, for instance, right? Or a special job. <laughs> a special job, yeah. When you go to see how many people, and you check how many people went to march to support it, there was like 600 in Sao Paulo, which Sao Paulo, the, the city of Sao Paulo is a city of two da, 20 million people, you know, so 600 is nothing. And what about the human rights climate in Brazil that oh. the current president... Jilma Rousseff has certainly been someone who suffered torture during the military period and has um, put together Truth Commission, but yet no one has really been punished for the crimes that were committed during that period. Yeah. Uh, there were uh, a few, they call like amnesty law, amnesty law, during Cardoso administration, which was a shock for us. The amnesty law meant basically to forgive the people that committed crime during the process, during the military coup, um, for, uh, forgive them of doing that. It was a special moment, you know. 
Why why were you shocking during Cardoso's administration? Because he himself, he was not like Dilma. Dilma suffered torture, right? He was just, ex he went to exile. He lived in Europe, I think. Yes, in France. I think he lived in France. And, uh, but that's it. We expect him to be more pro-human rights. And Dilma, she's following the process, like she, like you said. She implemented the Commission of Truth, Commission da Verdade. But I think in Brazil, things are too slowly sometimes. So you, you're not going to see the result, or we are not going to see the result as fast as we wish it was. Thank you so much, <laughs> Professor Cristina Pacheco of the State University of Paraíba in Brazil, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Okay, thank you very much for having me here. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros, Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. Las Rocas Productions.